Welcome to the Translate Your Doctor podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Figures, joined as always with my co-host, Dr. Trey Sertish. Trey, happy Sunday. Thank you. I uh, refused to answer this off record. There is a, to tease everyone that's listening on audio, to check out our YouTube channel, Translate Your Doctor on YouTube. There's an air mattress in the background. Mm-hmm. We're playing a little bit of a what's what's different. I spy what's different in this picture. And so there's an air mattress here. My mother-in-law is staying with us for uh-huh. spring break. We're, we're recording on the 14th and she came up on her spring break. She works in Austin for the Austin Independent uh-huh. School District. So she's up here for a couple days. I didn't realize that. Okay, so she's there now. Yeah, yeah. So she's hanging out. My wife and I recently found out we were, well, we are not pregnant. My wife is pregnant, but it's a sympathy pregnancy. And so she, my mother-in-law was all too ready to come up and, and be just in the, and be around. She's currently making a like little sock like a sock teddy bear for uh, her future grandchild. Very exciting. That's that's great, man. The other bonus for anyone uh, checking out the video on YouTube is the fact that Trey and I are wearing uh, our new uniforms, apparently, which is (laughs) black (laughs) t-shirts. Slightly different design, all right? Yeah, a little bit. Look, a little bit of a variety. Trey, you're just getting off your your shift. You're halfway through your six-day, seven-day shift. Um, Yeah, today was day four. Today is day four. Yeah, how's that been so far? It's been okay. It's been all right. I've got learners on my team, and um, I'm on what this is called the uh, PCU and ICU team, so sort of a mixture of acuities, and it's been great. And when you say learners, you mean doctors in training, basically? Mm-hmm, exactly. I have two interns who are on my team. That's great. And something that you and I have been um, chatting about, texting about, we had a great conversation last week with Maggie, who runs a support group for heart failure on Facebook, which really activated this great conversation, a continuing conversation about the sort of support that chronic that patients that have chronic disease are getting from these support groups, from their physicians. Something I'm curious about, and that you and I have never talked about in detail, I, I understand how physicians in the outpatient environment get caught up on patient records. Like there's a process to say, hey, if you're if you're joining a new physician, you're bringing all your records over. Maybe you're getting records from your old physician. There's a process for that. It's terrible and archaic, but I, I kind of understand how that works. But for you, when you show up to work, there are some pa- there are a lot of patients that show up with a chronic condition, and they're just they're just there mm-hmm. and Obviously, continuity of care matters a lot if you've got heart failure, if you've got high blood pressure, and you're on a specific set of medications. How do you try to handle that? Do you just trust that the patient can just do the just the facts, ma'am, efficiently? Or how do you all try to reconcile this information gap for patients that do have these chronic diseases? Yeah, it's a challenge. I mean... And it's also contextual. There are certain patients who are really engaged with their care. And and when they, they kind of understand if they're going to the hospital, if they had the luxury of kind of knowing or making that call, like they weren't brought there because they were ill or some catastrophe had happened. I mean, generally, if those kind of people who are going to the hospital understand, well, I should bring my meds or at least a list. I should understand my history, who my doctor is, et cetera. And so if that person, their doctor that is, is outside of our system and we don't have access to those records, that we can at least request them and get some approximation of what medicines they're on. There's sort of this inverse relationship that if someone, the more urgent their problem is, the less important their chronic problems become unless they're pertinent to like why they're there. Because clearly if someone's coming in with a heart attack or a stroke 
and they have chronic toe fungus. I'm just using a very extreme opposite example. It's really less relevant as opposed to, oh, they came in with a hangnail and they happen to have toe fungus. Then maybe it's important that I know what medicines are on and that really, but generally then it's not really that pressing to get that information. So you have time to ask them, okay, well, like, who's your doctor? Where are they? Do you know your medicines? And I think that's the second thing I would say, which is the luxury of being in the hospital is that although you're very busy and pressed for time, like any physician, you technically have an open-ended time with your patient. And so if you need to give that time to really ask and get their history, which is just all the details that they tell you about, about their medical problems and what they've been through and what they do, you can kind of dig into that as opposed to say someone in the clinic where you really are limited by your appointment time and the building up of patients. And that's really stressful and limits that. Yeah, that's a good point. And obviously we had our discussion about the challenges of fee-for-service medicine. I guess technically you could say in the outpatient environment, you could spend Mm -hmm. an unlimited amount of time with with your patients. You just never see your family. You could (laughs) technically run clinic. I imagine that's the same pressure on the inpatient side, which is I could spend, I can spend an hour with each patient, but if you've got, I I don't know Mm -hmm. what the average Mm -hmm. patient, I I don't know that you don't call it panel, but patients on your service. Is that the the service? Yeah. Yeah. But if you have 12 patients, 15 patients, mm-hmm. and you and you have to get through all of them before mm-hmm. you can leave, mm-hmm. then that limits the luxury of taking yeah. unlimited time with each patient. It's true. It's not a perfect analogy. I, I guess what I just mean to say is that to answer your question, like how do you deal with not having that information? Yeah, you've got to be able to talk with your patient more. And if they don't know, you have other resources. It depends on what you, information you're looking for. Again, if it's purely a medical history thing, say prior hospitalizations, well, you can contact that hospital for their records. If it's their outpatient records, well, you can attempt to contact that that clinic. If it's open, if it's available, if they'll pick up, things like that. And if it's a medication list, you can engage your pharmacy colleagues to kind of help populate their list of medicines that they should be on. So there are ways to get around it and make it not so concentrated on the physician. There are systems in the hospital that allow for it, just like there are systems in, well, depends on the clinic, but in most clinics. And, uh, but it's variable. I think that's the biggest thing. It's, it's extremely variable. Yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. So what I'm hearing, I'll, I'll sort of jump to the far end of the spectrum. You're not saying this. There's an element mm-hmm. on, in hospital medicine of something being kind of like not my problem or said it with a more kind way, it's the the way that I can be of best service to this patient right now. It's not solving every pa- problem the patient has. As far as I know, the patient has is getting wonderful care from someone out in the community. The patient's here because they had something happen that's requiring them to be in the hospital. I can be of best service to this patient by supporting the thing that led to their hospitalization. Yeah, there's you're talking about the dynamism of acuity. Like, what, what do I mean by that? It's just like, where are you putting your dynamic effort? Um, because you right, you only have so much time in the day for so many patients and for yourself. And so you really have to learn how to balance, okay, what is most pressing for this patient from my perspective, but then also what's most pressing from the patient's perspective. An example I give, especially when I'm teaching, is that you know, the first, you talk, again, you gather history, right? You talk about the patient, you talk with them, you get all the information, and then you're going to make an assessment. Remember, we talked about the SOAP note. So this is this is somewhat akin to that, right? So like what the patient tells you, they're subjective. What you measure, get labs for, et cetera, do an exam on, that's your objective. And then you're making an assessment. And then you're going to determine a plan for the patient. And But part of that assessment is like, it's never just one thing. It's a variety of things. And it's called a problem list. And so you number your problems. And generally speaking, you're like most acute, most 
problematic things should be at the top. That makes sense. But I, the way I try and tell learners is like, hey, don't forget that what a patient comes in complaining of isn't always what you're hospitalizing them for. They might say, my back hurts, and you find that they have a heart attack. And you're addressing their heart attack, but then they're like, well, doc, what about my back pain? And I think a lot of physicians are like, well, yeah, I mean, I'm taking care of your heart attack. Like, oh, great. I love that. Thank you very much. I'm appreciative of that, but I still have this problem. And so what I try and tell learners is like, try and put your first problem or your second problem. They're interchangeable. What is the patient complaining of? Like, what is their main, we call it the chief complaint. Make sure you're addressing that. And then of course, what are you as the doctor most concerned about? Hopefully they align, but they don't always do. I appreciate the nuance, the nuance in that. And I, then I guess the challenge on the back end and, and connecting to what you and I wanted to talk about with the core discussion here is that with a patient with a chronic disease, there's imperfect resources in hospitals. And one of the big healthcare things that we've talked about already is the fragmentation, right? Mm -hmm. It's no one's, it's no one person's job to make sure that you're where you should be in your healthcare journey. And what a lot of people would say, the people that are like, oh, responsibility, it's the patient's responsibility. It's like, right, this patient that has not been empowered at all to understand our Byzantine healthcare system, it is yeah. their responsibility to advocate for themselves. And, but whenever they advocate for themselves in the wrong way, we then we right. punish them and, and jump all over them. They're a typical patient. Right. And so the, there's a challenge because these patients don't always get connected with who they need to be. Because what I imagine is, a, is an ellipsis, right, or a common that says, Mr. Figures, we can't address all of these issues right now. I can't address your back pain right now, necessarily. But here's what I am going to make sure is that we have a plan for what should happen next. That might be in an ideal world where it's, hey, upon discharge, we're going to make sure that you get connected with the PCP physician. We're going to make sure that you get connected because if that person has a life-altering illness, and we've talked about mm -hmm. that a lot with this notion of mm -hmm. life-altering illnesses, mm -hmm. you're, you're going to leave this earth with some form of you know, high blood pressure, diabetes, chronic heart disease, chronic mm -hmm. kidney disease, like all, you know, these things are going to be with you forever. Oh my gosh, it seems so important to have mm -hmm. an advocate. We, you and I have talked mm -hmm. a lot as well about this idea of advocacy from a, mm -hmm. a care provider. Mm -hmm. And that does seem like it, it's, a, it's a gap because no one owns that in the inpatient environment. Is that something you've ever felt the stress of? Because I know you're at, a, you're at an institution that can have patients that have insurance challenges, patients that have these gaps. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I would say, honestly, that's probably the largest challenge that the American health system faces. That sounds really hyperbolic, but fragmentation of care results from a lot of the things that we have discussed and likely will discuss in this like kind of ongoing discussion of what's wrong with the American healthcare system. And whether it is fee-for-service, right, which fragments your care into procedures and billable services, whether it is different insurances that cover different things and pay for different physicians in different places, that fragments your system quite figuratively. And it's all of these things and, and fragmentation in terms of who's taking my care of my problems. I have to have a specialist for this, this, and this. And I hope to have a quarterback physician or a primary care doctor. I hope to have somebody in the hospital who's advocating for me as I navigate something in a very scary part of my life. And so I really do believe that fragmentation is the biggest problem like you've outlined. And in the hospital, you just, I try, like we're, we're talking about, to, to be that advocate for them and to try and pull it all back together as, as best as I can. It's very, very challenging. It's probably the thing that is most 
that contributes most, I would say, to burnout amongst physicians, which is just this sense of I can't pull their care together because it's so complex, even if I know what they need. And I think that that's really that either pushes some physicians away, intimidates others or drains the ones who kind of dive into it. And that's challenged because it's not contributing to fixing the system. It's really just band-aiding individual patients. And that both frustrates the, the physicians and obviously the patients who are suffering from that because no one's really contributing to a solution. They're just adapting to the problem of fragmented care. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's something that can also be a, a misunderstanding for patients that have high needs is there's this there's this idea that there are these safety nets that exist, right? Like, mm-hmm. if I fall, this thing will catch me. Well, that can be a bit, little bit of a trick. Because just because you're in a hospital, which functions as a safety net, right? You're in the emergency room. You get admitted uh, and you have a hospital stay. Well, they're, they're going to slingshot you out of a state of crisis, sure. But you may just you may fall back down again if you can't get the care that you need in the outpatient you know which is to say in the in the walking around regular world environment outside of the hospital and the people in the hospital the physicians like dr trey sertish that as much as they want to support you they are limited they're limited in with time resources all the things they they need and even amongst systems like the connected system that that dr mcclelland uh, was talking about where that hospital system does have have hospitals and then they have physicians on the in the outpatient world. Even then, that connection is is imperfect because there there isn't just right. an easy button for those things. And so I think the the takeaway for uh, any patient listening to this that has ongoing issues is to know mm-hmm. that hey, just because you're in a hospital, if you do get hospitalized and you have been putting off managing your illness. You being hospitalized and talking to a doctor, just because the doctor doesn't talk about your life-altering illness doesn't mean there's nothing to talk about. It just means that that wasn't priority one or priority two in supporting you, giving mm-hmm. you the support that you needed while you were in the hospital, mm-hmm. which connects us to you You really have to look out for yourself and advocate for yourself. Unfortunately, not mm-hmm. every physician is Dr. Trey Sertish, not every person yeah. that you interact with. A burned-out physician, someone that suffered at the hands of our healthcare system can often look like the bad guy or the mm-hmm. bad yeah. person yeah. and that's hard because it's really easy to throw stones at the physician who's really at the end of their rope and you and i've talked about that especially mm-hmm. post covid how many physicians in covid have have mm-hmm. from with a good heart thrown themselves into the the front lines mm-hmm. and maybe unintentionally been part of whatever not the solution been part of the problem because they they haven't made it easy to to support themselves or to mm-hmm. not end up in this burned out place so I think that connects us to this, this recommendation that as a patient with a life-altering illness, it's important to have an advocate. It's important mm-hmm. to have, of course, great hospital care, but also great, great care outside of the hospital. Do you have a, at, my, at the family practice I worked at, mm-hmm. we called it a throw-up speech. Do you have a throw-up speech that you, you give to patients, you give to loved ones and talking about, hey, if you've got, if, if you're not managing your diabetes, if you don't have a physician that's supporting you on that, here's what, here's why you should have that. Like what, what's, what's your throw up speech on this idea of like advocacy, especially with someone with a life altering illness? I don't know. It's a good question. And I think that I do, but I don't think I have one because I think that like we've discussed, and I think you get frustrated at me saying, it's just like, it is so contextual because d- despite the system, the system can be unifyingly fragmented, but each individual 
has their own run-in with those fragments. And I think that it just determines what they need to be told. And different people, you hit on this a little bit earlier, right? Which is some people will say, well, they just need to take personal responsibility. There are some people that need to take personal responsibility. That definitely exists, but it's a spectrum. Then there's people all the way on the other side who would like take all the responsibility in the world and they still suffer. And then there's pretty much the majority, the overwhelming majority, which is in between, which is I'd like to take more responsibility. I don't exactly know if I'm doing this effectively. I don't know if I should. Is that the right thing I should advocate for? So honestly, my first appraisal as I get to know people is like, okay, well, where are you on that spectrum? And then to engage them accordingly. And so my throw up speech as you're saying to them is really just like, listen, number one, naming it, the system sucks. Like the system sucks and the system feels bad and it feels like you're losing and you are right now because you're in the hospital and that that never feels good. So let's start there by naming it. And then two, well, all right, where, where are the first kind of, it could be baby steps, it could be major steps, but where are the first concrete, tangible steps, steps we could take not only this hospital stay, but also planning for when you leave? And that can vary. If it's as simple as like my medicine's too expensive, okay, well, let's find alternative medicines or charity programs or whatever, what have you. Oh, I can't get to my appointments because transportation's unreliable. All right, well, let's look at those options. Oh, I don't like taking my medicines because they erase my sex, sex drive with my wife. And I just, I can't talk about that with anyone and I just don't want to use it. It's like, okay, well, all these things are extremely contextual And depending on the problem, like say with the transportation, that interacts with a lot of things that I, as a physician, don't actually like deal with. And so those, that's a high fragment, right? That's a high fragment. If we're sticking with the, now it's a high fragment uh, problem. And so it's like, okay, well, now what I'm telling them is like, listen, I'm limited to what I can do, but I know you need to do this. And it's generally what I'm saying to get back to you is like, be persistent, be, and be focused on what the problem is so that you can find a solution because the solution may look different in our system. And so if your problem is not getting to your appointments, okay, well, like go to your church, see if someone will take you, call a friend, see if they'll take you, utilize family, utilize public transportation. If you're over a certain age or, or under a certain income, can you do things like accessoride that like take you to your appointment? What can you do to get there? So I know that's not like a definitive answer, but what I mean to say is that like, I don't think that there is one thing I could tell them other than know what you need, which might require a conversation with your doctor and then be persistent in finding a solution for that need. I think there's a misunderstanding too about this idea of advocacy. Like, can you talk a little bit about how you Mm -hmm. think about advocacy? And and let me give you a frame this way. And this isn't to disparage any of our wonderful healthcare providers that are out there. Sure. But roles, it's really easy for the average person to misunderstand the role of whoever they're working with in the healthcare system. And let me be specific. The Mm. role of a wonderful, high-performing, 90th percentile physician at an urgent care clinic Mm -hmm. and the role of a 90th percentile high-performing primary care family medicine physician at a family family practice office. How do you think about this idea of advocacy uh, from a physician's perspective? For those, for those instances, like the urgent care and the family care? Yeah, I'm using, okay. I'm picking on that as an example of, of I think it's really easy to think like, mm. I went to the urgent care and they... Sure, they, they, they gave me a prescription and then made a follow-up and then they sent me home. Yep. 
And that might feel, despite them being like you say in the 90th percentile, that might feel to them, the, the provider, like I did a good job, I did my job effectively, but it might feel to the patient like I didn't get what I was looking for. Is that oh, what you mean? Or the opposite, right? Mm -hmm. The provider could say, within my scope of what I do here at this urgent care, like I, mm -hmm. I did what I was supposed to do. The patient came in for an acute mm -hmm. issue. I solved yeah. that acute issue right. and I supported that patient. We may see... 500 patients a day, that urgent care provider my physician might be seeing 30 patients a day, moving 15 minutes, bam, 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 cruising. Mm -hmm. And the patient comes in, patient's maybe anxious, mm -hmm. and the patient gets maybe a third of what they might get from an advocate. Mm -hmm. but sure. They, the, but the, the, I would argue that that person's not being an advocate, and, and that doesn't, I think it, one thing that needs to be clarified, and we're gonna continue to define this as we go on, is that not all physicians need to be advocates. Right. That, so you and I are saying the same you know, thing. I'm, I'm yeah, not doing yeah, a good yeah. job of explaining No, I think it. I understand what you mean, which is like, where does the role of advocate become important as opposed to means to an end? And again, like you're saying, that's unfair to those physicians or providers. There are certain specific roles. Like if you need a hand surgeon and you put a bus saw through your hand, I'm not looking for an advocate in that instant. I'm looking for someone who can repair my hand. And that is a means to an end. And that those those roles, those are highly important fragments in the healthcare system, highly, highly important, vital even. And so I see, I think I see what you're saying is when is an advocate important? That's right. If, if we were, rec yeah. when are we telling someone, hey, maybe you'll be fine, 30 year old, no underlying health conditions. Yeah, you wanna use urgent care as to get your Z pack, to get your antibiotics, great, that's probably <laughs> fine. But at this point, you might need to think about specifically seeking out an advocate. Yeah, I mean, I think honestly, if you're feeling frustrated by the system, I mean, I, and I think everyone can feel that way. Like if you are going to your physician and you feel like it's benefiting you and you're feeling good and your problems are being addressed, well, why do you need an advocate? I mean, I think that it's similar to if you're going about your life and you're following the letter of the law and you're not being prosecuted by anyone or thrown in jail, you don't need a lawyer. Like you don't need someone to advocate for you and your problems and navigate a system, which is kind of what a lawyer is in my very basic understanding of the law system. And I think the same thing applies for a physician, which is like, yeah, I mean, if you're utilizing the American healthcare system, because some people do, a lot of people do, in fact, and they feel perfectly fine with it. That I think that's one of the main reasons why many changes don't happen to it, because enough people get what they need. And it is so fragmented and, and Byzantine, like you've said, that it's hard to get your head around what needs to change. So all I mean to say is that an advocate is important more based on when the patient needs one. Mm -hmm. And most often that's going to be in the hospital or as a primary care doctor. That's generally it. I think that obstetricians for, for women's care when they're pregnant is a really good example of advocacy because it's a bigger challenge than just simple health ones. I'll, I'll, I'm curious mm. about the hospital piece because it feels mm. like it's harder for patients to shop around in the hospital for yeah. for an, an OB-GYN. There's a there's a strong informal referral network for finding a great OB-GYN. Obviously, you and I are trying to, to empower patients on how to find potentially a primary care or other provider mm -hmm. that can advocate mm -hmm. for them. On the inpatient side, that's curious because it, it feels yeah. like it's not possible. It's not possible anymore. Not with the current system. I mean, it just isn't. It. it, it the throughput is too great. The concentration of illness in the hospital is too great. The turnover is too great. The complexity of hospital-based problems, it cannot be emphasized, mm -hmm. not to just like 
puff up my chest and be like, oh, my job's really difficult. What I mean to say is just like people who are in the hospital are generally sick Mm -hmm. and sicker than they ever have been in the previous decades. And because if you have to be in a hospital, we set up all these other things. You've already named a few of them, emergency departments and urgent care centers and increasingly larger primary care networks. Those things are meant to stop people from ever getting to the hospital, which is a great intent. But still, still people make it there. And when they do, that means that they're they're pretty sick. They fell through all these things. Yeah. And um, so, you know, all these pressures to deal with this means that it's particularly fragmented in the hospital. And there's a lot. There's, there's a lot less control over who can, who do I choose to see? Because like we said, I think a few episodes ago now, your doctor generally, vast majority of the care that's delivered in hospitals is not the same doctor who you see as your primary care doctor. It used that's to be right. that way, yeah. but it's not that way anymore. Yeah. And that's relatively new. I mean, that that's what's so mm-hmm. interesting, fascinating, mm-hmm. exciting, challenging in medicine is that how much medicine has changed. Hundred year mm-hmm. industry, oh, yeah. young, young science, young mm-hmm. industry and evolving all the time. Mm-hmm. I, I would add to your, your advocate definition mm-hmm. to say, as a patient, if you need a relationship with your physician, you're looking mm-hmm. for an advocate. If you need yeah. something that feels like it's not going to be transactional. If you need mm-hmm. to feel like that physician is like meeting you halfway and really investing in, in sympathy, empathy, a connection, yeah. not that you can't get that anywhere, but right, 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 right. but if it's a priority for you and you want to optimize for that, yes. then what you're looking for is an advocate. And that is something that you need to shop around for. And I guess now that you're saying that, and I'm really considering, I guess I would amend what, what I've said, which is if you really need it in the moment, because that's not thinking far enough ahead, right? Because everyone's going to die and we don't know how, and everyone's got family and likely part of that family is going to die before you are not to be morbid, but that's the natural cycle of life. And at one point or another, you're going to be ill unless you're one lucky few. And so building a relationship with that physician and being prepared, I think is, is a large part, almost like an insurance policy, almost like if you can navigate and you've built that strong advocate relationship with somebody so that when something happens, they kind of know you already and know what they need to do, even if they're not the individual doctor who's taking care of you because it's highly unlikely that's going to be the case for reasons we discussed so i think that that is a good enough sense and frankly i think combats a lot of the burnout that's contributing to physicians which is when you feel like you're being used and you're only a tool or a cog it can feel extremely you can feel extremely powerless i should say and and feel just like that piece of machinery but I think if people who are coming to you and just like, they don't really need anything necessarily, but they just want to start building that relationship, that feels really good. And and when they actually need you, you're like, wow, I'm ready to give because I wasn't just already giving and giving and giving when I saw them. I'm not yeah. sure if that's tenable from a financial standpoint, but it's an interesting point from an advocacy standpoint. Yeah. I think we talked about support groups mm-hmm. last week with Maggie and a patient's first support group is them and their physician in some ways, right? Mm-hmm. Because a support group exists as a, a complement to your relationship with your physician. It, it cannot replace, it, mm-hmm. it should not replace, uh, you know, competent medical care. There's a reason that that's mm-hmm. so valuable to have guidance and, and coaching and, and appropriate challenging to some extent from your medical uh, provider. And not everyone gets that. And your medical provider can't be with you every day in a way that a support group can week to week, helping you with the emotional challenges, helping with the mental challenges, the mental blocks. That's why support groups are so, so valuable 
again, with chronic diseases, with life-altering illnesses, the work Maggie's doing, I think, is so, so essential mm -hmm. for empowering and, and helping people with these um, conditions that require mental and emotional fortitude. Mm -hmm. But getting with a physician that can show you empathy and sympathy, and especially, too, I think there are a lot of chronic diseases, a lot of life-altering illnesses where there's stigma associated. And I think that's also one of the barriers for people seeking treatment is there's there's this fear of judgment even someone who's like let's say chronically obese or has some something that makes them like overweight that that is an, an impossible such a hard thing to talk with a provider about because there's so much sometimes emotional uh, mental baggage on behalf of the patient mm -hmm. and there's this there's this fear of being judged and critiqued by your physician and that hurts in that moment because there's this power dynamic in that room that creates an imbalance that where the, the doctor can really punch down. And I don't think it's socialized enough yet. Again, this is partly what you and I are here mm. doing that, gosh, you deserve better and mm. you can find better as a patient. You can find the doctor services out there who really are trying to meet you halfway and trying to understand and listen and, and, and not going to look down on you for whatever, has happened that's led you to this place really trying to lift you up on your terms and i think you see a lot of things on social media you see a lot of things shared where the opposite happens and i think that can also scare people away from from medicine where they think that their doctor is going to be dr house house is a really very entertaining show but like i was a jerk like i was terrible to people like i was terrible to patients that's not the example you want of what medicine is like if you have people with sensitive, vulnerable disease states that need to be establishing with their physicians, that, that's another block that I think gets in the way of advocacy and these, these healthy relationships with, with yeah. doctors and, and I, patients. Patrick, I couldn't agree more. In fact, I think I agree so much that I, I think our next episode should be discussing how do, how do patients navigate stigma of their disease in healthcare? How do they bring it up? with their physician. I think that's what we should talk about next time. Yeah, we'll do that. I love that. I love that. Any, we, we sort of bounced around a little bit, Trey, any mm -hmm. closing thoughts as we kind of wind down or we're right at our kind of magic half yeah. hour mark? Honestly, we've given that seminar, the introductory seminar to all like the classes for translate your doctor. And, the, and one of those tasks that is giving to patients that we tell, we charge them with, honestly, is like, think about how you define yourself and think about what success looks like. And then like, simply list all the things you wish your doctor were translating. That's less true here. But again, I would say for think about what you would want from an advocate and and we're using the word advocate it doesn't have to be that way that's somewhat of a clumsy definition but i think that someone who can serve as much a communal connection with you as opposed to a professional one and because i think if you have an understanding as to what you'd like similar to what you'd seek in a partner or a friend I think that you're better at appraising when someone's not meeting those expectations. And so I think what I would say is that despite all the things that we're talking about and kind of obscure and vague and, and so on and big idea stuff, I think what I'd come down to and distill it to is that what would an advocate as a physician, okay, as a physician, what would you want that person to be? And if you don't have a debilitating or life-altering illness, because you don't have to, and I hope you don't, um, one day you might, or maybe a loved one, God forbid, does, what would you want in that instance? So I think that's what I would say, because I'm going to be thinking about it. I thought I had a definition and then you were start talking and I was like, oh yeah, well, maybe not. And so even with me, who have thought about this a lot, I'm 
evolving as to what it could be. That's very well said, man. Well, as always, mm-hmm. that's another episode. There was the there's the 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 good <laughs> Patrick, Patrick hand motion. Patrick. I want to encourage everyone. Trey and I can be reached at translateyourdoctor at gmail.com. Would love to get questions, comments, nice words about how handsome Trey and I are, what a great job we're doing. Whatever you feel like sharing and saying, that'd be great. New episodes go out every Wednesday. Feel free to look us up at translateyourdoctor.com to see what Trey and I are up to. Check out the YouTube channel. Check out our Facebook page. I post little updates every week, little clips from the show. And we'll catch up with you next week. Thank you, Trey. Yeah, thank you.